In way of introduction, we are presently in the middle part of the Song of Solomon chapter 2. But in way of introduction, I just want to thank you guys um, for the incredible amount of feedback that I've gotten from this particular series. Um, and, I, and I say that not in a comical way, but in a very true sense when you, as a pastor, feel like the Lord's leading you a particular direction, and you know that with that's going to come a certain measure of, you know, of complication and controversy, that it will be a bit provocative. It would be way easy to allegorize this, and it would keep me out of trouble, but that's not my conviction about what God's intention is behind the song itself. So we're approaching it the way that we feel as though God um, intended it to be. But your feedback has been so helpful. I was talking to a dear sister this week. And, and she made the comment, she said, you know, uh, several years ago, my husband and I went through a real tough patch, and, and we, we weren't feeling it, um, it was difficult, uh, there had been conversations of divorce and what that might look like, and we were in a really rough patch, but we, but we made a decision, we made a decision that we were going to love each other, even if we didn't feel it. We were going to stay committed that we had made vows and we were going to trust God that he would meet us in our faithfulness and would provide the feelings after the fact. And she goes, we're going through Song of Solomon and it's like, it's my marriage and just the work that God has done. And it's like, well, I said, so th thank you so much. That's such an encouragement to just know that, that it's hitting. I talked to another friend that said, you know, for the longest time, um, I thought that oral sex, even in marriage, was somehow dirty and sinful. And it's in this series that it's, no, that God has created the marriage bed. He has sanctified it, he's made it holy, and that these interactions between a, a married couple, God designed this. And she said that, you know, the world has weighed in on sex. And the, the world has been preaching a sermon about sex since at least the 60s. The church has, has not met the falsehood with the truth. God not just created sex, but he gave us an entire rock opera dedicated to the celebration of it and how pure it is and beautiful. I don't know if you guys have, have been trying to take these things and apply them. I might get in trouble for this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for it anyway. So Jessica and I, you know, have been, have been each individually, just letting the Lord speak to us. And, you know, there's, there's kind of a, a rule of thumb within, within, you know, preaching, you know, that, that your personal devotion time with God should come from somewhere other than the place that you preach. And, and I've never done that because I've, I've immersed myself in whatever it is I'm teaching. And I let God speak to me, and then I try to relay that to you, and I hope that that's effective. Well, I had to take, uh, I had to, to drive down Thursday night to the airport to pick up my mom. Uh, she was flying in from Oregon. My dad was on a mission trip in Uganda, so it, it, it came down onto the firstborn to make this miserable drive to the airport in the rain, the storm. Uh, but honor your father and mother. It's like, I got to do this. Uh, so I drive down. I pick up my mom. Uh, she was delayed. And if you get delayed at the airport and you're the guy picking, picking up the, you know, the family member and you're trying to figure out what do I do because the cell lot's now shut down and you're trying to navigate like staying away from the cops while you're on the curb. She took the plane train shut down on her. Like she got stuck on the plane train. Anyway, my night became a very late night. And then my dad thought that it would be like some wise thing to turn the water off to the house. But instead of doing it, you know, 
from the valve that they make it easy to from the garage. She had to do it from the street and it's pouring down rain and I'm out there with a tool and it's muddy and like, like me honor mom. I felt like I did a good thing. I got home late and I got home and if you've ever been to our house, you come in from the garage and our master bedroom is right there. There's a little hallway, but it's right there. So Jessica, is, is she stayed up for me. And she goes, you, rough night. I said, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go just sit and just chill out for a little bit. And just, I'm, I'm kind of amped up. I'm not really ready for bed. And she goes, well, why don't you just come, come rest with me? I thought, okay. Okay. Now, I go get myself some orange juice. It's foreplay. And in my mind, the Lord starts convicting me. The Lord starts saying, Zach, that's your bride. You got to practice what you preach. You got to take care of her. What does she need? It's not about what you want. It's about what she needs. I'm like, oh, man, I did preach that. Son of a gun. So I go and I get in bed. and I'm like, what does my wife need? She probably needs some conversation. So I get in bed, and I just start talking about anything and everything that I could think to talk about because she needs some meaningful conversation. After a whole day with the kids and running around, she just probably, she needs some emotional connection. So I talk, and I talk, and I talk. And I think I'm doing the right thing. And about halfway through, she goes, you did kill it, you know that? I said, I did what? She goes, yeah, I was ready when you got home. And you decide you're going to get in bed and chit-chat. And I'm like, men and women. It's hard, isn't it? Even when you go into it like, Lord, I'm wanting to do the right thing. And she's going into it, Lord, I want to do the right thing. You both do the wrong thing. It is a mystery. It is a challenge. And I say that to say I'm so glad that even while it's this, this craziness, how to figure it all out, that God hasn't left us without some instructions. It's colorful. It's beautiful. But God did give us this book to help us navigate something that is very complicated and complex. Yeah, I have found... And I'll, I'll agree with my brother, David Guzik. He, he made an observation in his commentary in chapter two. He says, you know, the, the song of Solomon tends to really tick off two groups of people. Like the two groups of people that get most bent out of shape are on two different ends of the, of the spectrum. You have absolutely what I would call the Christian legalist, the prude. That's like, we shouldn't be talking about these type of things in, in the church. Even though God wrote a whole book about it. The prude. This is inappropriate. Even though we all do it, it's, it's like a central human behavior that God weighs in on. We should avoid talking about it. And so when, you know, you hear my particular approach to this, you know, there is, it ruffles some feathers on like the Christian legalist prudish uh, side of the spectrum. But the other side of the spectrum, what I might call like the secular hedonist, is equally offended because they reject the restraints that God places on sexuality and sex, thinking that it's, it's prudish or boorish. 
And yet God weighs in. I made this thing. It's to be beautiful. It's to be enjoyed. It's to make oneness. It's to restore something. It's awesome. And here are the parameters to get the most out of it. And I do say that. To say that that God is very liberal on sexual activity within marriage. In regards to the activity and how it can be enjoyed and and what actions can be shared, the Bible places very few restrictions within that context. But there is one big restriction. Monogamy. Heterosexual monogamy. The world wants to say, hey, sex is biological, sex is about you, and thus it, it, it's, it can be free. And yet God says, no, that's destructive. That'll rip you off from the experience. That'll damage yourself. No, this is something so special that I got to place these parameters around it to protect it. We dive into the book. Back to where we left off, chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. Sometimes, and we'll see this really illustrated um, in today's study, um, I'm I'm operating from the premise that that trying to to structure any type of chronology uh, doesn't work very well within the Song of Solomon. I also really kind of just pull back from this being any type of of an actual historical story, that it's, it's, it's trying to communicate the love of Solomon and this one specific woman. Again, I think it's just a general song with various albums, different tracks. And so, you know, if you're trying to work these things into some literal story, then you've got to say, well, this has to be a dream sequence because they do make love, but then the, the wedding comes into chapter four. And so, you know, she's dreaming or she's having these fantasies. Again, I just kind of get away from all of that. We just let it speak to us as it is. We hit to the next track in the album when we get to verse 8. We know that because we're introduced to a new scene. We're out in the countryside. The Shulamite sings the voice of my beloved. Behold, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. I like that. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He is looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. What we have articulated here is the Shulamite, this maiden. There is an eager anticipation to having a rendezvous with her beloved. She's waiting for him. There's an anticipation. She imagines his his journey how he's skipping through the mountains, how he's making his way to her, how he approaches the house. She can hear his voice before he even sees his presence. She's excited. She catches a look. He's glancing through the lattice. And then verse 10, the Shulamite says, my beloved spoke and said to me. So we have the Shulamite quoting the beloved. So these are the words of the beloved coming from being recited from the Shulamite. So she's likely singing this portion. This doesn't switch to, to the man. But the beloved spoke and said to me, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. And the voice of the turtle dove is in our land. The fig tree puts forth 
green figs, and the vines with tender grapes, gives a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away with me. So you have from the Shulamite this eager anticipation. He arrives, and then there's this glorious invitation, an urgent invitation. Come away with me. Let's get out of town. Let's have some alone time. And the referencing here of spring is that they're fertile. They've bloomed. Their love is, is at a crescendo. It's, there's this freshest. Winter's gone. The rains have ceased. You know, there is a general cycle to all of life, just generally speaking. I think God kind of illustrates this just in the most practical way by giving us actual seasons. You know, we have spring followed by summer, and then fall, and then winter, and then it cycles over again. Generations have particular cycles. Eons have cycles. Cultures and uh, empires have cycles. But we have cycles. We have cycles in our relationships. There are, are times where a relationship will go through the heat of a summer, and following the heat, the, the, the trial, whatever the conflict was, there's kind of a fall, a, a peace time, followed sometimes by a winter. Winters can be hard, they can be, they can be light, but it's always followed at some juncture by spring. Every relationship, I think, goes through general cycles. Sometimes you're feeling it, sometimes things are clicking, sometimes things are, are wonderful, we're in a good spot, and then you have a baby. And we've entered winter. We've entered winter because the doctor forbade sex for a period of time for recovery purposes. But then the woman's not feeling as beautiful as she was. She's recovering, trying to, to lose some LBs to regain her figure. She doesn't feel beautiful or sexy. Your fellow's comeuppance in those times sometimes isn't fully appreciated. You just hit a lull, and it's a natural thing, and then it, it, it comes back to a springtime, and then a summer, and there are cycles to relationships, and we find this relationship's in a cycle. She is, she is longing for her beloved, and he comes. Now, I, I, I do think there's a, a unique um, and an important side note to this, um, especially for the fellas. Women, and you find it illustrated here, women love to be pursued, there's something intrinsic within just the psychology of a woman. They want to be pursued. They want to be longed for. Um, they want you to come after them. They want the man to often be the initiator. Now, earlier in the Song of Solomon, chapter 1, we see the woman doing an inviting. It's not always incumbent on the man alone, and yet women want to be pursued. This often is what causes a complication in, in the earlier years of a marriage, because the entire uh, courtship, dating, engagement phase is the man pursuing. You're trying to get a ring on it, you know? You're trying to lock that woman down. You know, you're trying to, to get to marriage and get to a marriage night. You're pursuing. And then you've won. You've conquered. There's a reward. And then what does a man sometimes subtly get into the, the, the mindset of? Well, I no longer need to be pursuing. I've pursued and I've captured. I have her. And then you lose the pursuit. And then that stirs something with it. Like, is there something wrong with me? All of the things that you were doing to woo her 
from flowers to chocolates to taking her out to walks in the park. All these things you wouldn't want to do in any other time. You've stopped. And then she starts to feel unloved or lonely. You see, Within this marriage, there is this continual pursuing, and there is an excitement. Now, you have to be creative, fellas, in how you're going to do that, and the way in which you do that. But she's crying out. Also note, just from the language that's used, she doesn't just want to be pursued. This is what gets hard. She wants you to like it. <laughs> you know, I think sometimes in our best attempts, like, okay, I got to do this. We end up doing it begrudgingly, and it doesn't come off like we intended it to. <laughs> she doesn't just want to be pursued. She wants you to want to pursue. She wants you to have fun with the pursuit. She wants you to be excited about being with her. Again, we go back to last Sunday, and the, the core principle of marriage in general is death to self. The biggest enemy to sexual oneness is pride and self-centeredness. The man has to be preferring the woman, and the woman has to be preferring her man. It's the only way that it works, and this requires selflessness. Now, from a much larger standpoint, let me give you some encouragement. You can't do any of this without the power of the Holy Spirit. See, if you're struggling with any of these things, if you can, you, you really have two options. You can look for the strength to do it within your own flesh, but your own flesh likely got you into the problem. Or you can say, Lord, I, I'm struggling here. You've promised to give me dunamos, to give me power, to give me the strength to do the things that I don't feel like doing or I don't think I can. Lord, meet me in my weakness and give me the strength to pursue and be happy and joyous about it. Again, it's easy when we start talking about sex to just revert back into 12 steps that you can uh, force your flesh into obedience. But that is law, and that's legalism. Again, the great remedy that we all have is the Holy Spirit and his power, something foreign, something beyond us. And man, and marriage, don't we need to rely on it? <laughs> my, my wife has, has kind of employed a unique prayer I didn't really understand it as a prayer early on, but the more I've heard it, which I've heard it a lot, I've come to realize, man, this is, this is kind of a powerful prayer. This is a prayer to the Holy Spirit in her moment of need. My kids are 12, one's about to be nine, and the, the little one, she's five, going on 13. I mean, my house is crazy. And there are moments where I can see my wife absolutely I mean, we're bordering murder-suicide, you know. And what, what will you hear? She starts verbally saying, I do love my children. 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 And she repeats this all the time. I do love my children. I do love my children. And at first, I was like, she's got a tick. She's breaking. Like the tick-tock, tick-tock, we're about to explode. But no, I've come to actually discover that it's her prayer. Like what she's praying is, I do love my, my children. Lord, you got to help me because I don't. <laughs> I want to kill them right now. <laughs> Lord, help me love my children. Lord, help me love my children. But we have to do that with our, our relationships. All of them, but the most important. I've married a lot of you. And there's a part in the sermon that I give you 
as you're standing here, is that Solomon, in another book, another wisdom literature, but in Ecclesiastes, and talking about marriage, he says a two-fold cord is not going to make it. But there's greater strength in what Solomon describes as a threefold cord. You have the husband, the wife, those are two cords. But, but it's so easy. The world, it's stretching and it's hard. And, and it can, you can become frayed. In fact, just two strands. There's strength, sure. But there's greater strength in a third is what Solomon sees. And we find that within Jesus. And that is not just enough to, to add Jesus to your marriage, but you have to make each of you, your relationships with Jesus, the center. It's the only way that you're going to find the strength that you need and the humility to be selfless. So there's this great invitation. Just come away. Now, verse 14, it could still be the beloved speaking. It could, there's a little bit of, of of kind of ambiguity, I tend to think that this is still the Shulamite quoting the beloved, but we read, oh my dove. Now, uh, this, we have an earlier reference, and with rocks, rock albums, there's general themes that you'll find from song to song. We have a mention of, of her eyes being like dove, dove's eyes in chapter 1, uh, verse 15. Oh my dove, and the clefts of the rock and the secret places of the cliff. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Anticipation and invitation come away with me. They're together. My dove. This sincerity, this beauty, this simplicity. And he wants to see her. I, I love the, this, this phrase, let me see your face. This word face, it's a unique word in the Hebrew. It doesn't so much mean one's actual face, but, but can speak more broadly to their soul, their person, their essence, the full self. So the invitation is not just let me see your face or, or, or let me engage with you in a physical way. I want to see you. I want to spend time with you. I want to, I want to get beyond, beyond fluids and biology and location. I want connection. And this is the man speaking to her. Women want to be seen. So do men. And, and this excerpt, your voice is sweet. You know, words matter. Language matters. Fellas, tone matters. That's a hard one. Men, men are not great communicators. That, that's not like a knock on men per se. But men often within their uh, career fields out in the world, uh, men understand a, a, the lingo of other men. And we don't have to break down our feelings. Um, I could say, I could say, sup bro? And, and that, that, if, it's, if I'm talking to Nick, he'd be like, oh, Zach said that he really loves me and really cares about me being in his presence. <laughs> like, I don't have to say all of those words for me to articulate to Nick, like, what's up, bro? Yeah, man, I got you, right? Like, like we know. Women are totally different. Totally different. 
and how they communicate and receive communication. There's an old book, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. There's some truth to the reality that tone, the way that we communicate, the way we communicate is often more important than what's communicated. Like, fellas, you can say exactly what you wanted to say and it be perceived the exact opposite way. Anyone ever had that happen? (laughs) Yeah, amen. Because tone, emotion, Men approach things very logical. It goes through the mind first, and then it's processed. Women, it goes through the heart. They hear tone first, and then the word second. But here in this communication, I want to hear your voice. Hear. It's not the words of his voice. It's the tone of his voice. And your face is lovely. Verse 15, catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines. For our vines have tender grapes. Now, you'll see that there's a heading to verse 15 that says her brothers. Again, these headings are not part of the inspired text. They've been added by the translators in order to give us some some context. A lot of scholars will place this as being some other group of people outside of the beloved and the Shulamite. That this is an interjection of, of, of somebody else. Again, that can get really complicated if you're trying to weave some intricate tale. If not, you can just take this as a, as a cool um, tag between the chorus and the bridge, you know. Um, again, it's simple. Like, you don't have to overthink it. And within this, um, there is an, an interesting um, exhortation being given to these two people in love and marriage. And it's a caution to what's called the foxes, the little foxes. Now, This is an agricultural society. The Shulamite has already been introduced as kind of being a blue-collar gal working in the the vineyards, which is why, you know, her skin was tanned. Um, Working in in a vineyard was kind of a normal thing, especially this this part of the world, this area, uh, making wine. Now, within a vineyard, there was a goal, obviously, to, to make wine. In order to make wine, you needed to protect the grapes. You needed to make sure that the vineyard was protected. Now, on occasion, there, there would be things that would occur outside of your control, your general control, that will destroy the vineyard, that, that you've got no hope. Like big events, if there's a flood, good luck. If there's an invading army, good luck. Like there are times that big singular events can destroy the vineyard. Now, if we're carrying this as as a metaphor or a picture into marriage, there are things that can absolutely wreck a marriage incredibly quickly. Sexual infidelity, adultery, a big event can come in and destroy a marriage. Things speaking outside of your control, the death of a child can destroy a marriage. But predominantly, these are not the things that destroy marriages most frequently. They happen. But what tends to be the culprit isn't one big thing, but a whole lot of little ones. The little foxes. Again, you can safeguard to the best of your ability, big events. You can build walls, etc. But little foxes, in a very practical sense, can be as destructive as a flood. They're harder to catch, they're harder to see, but they creep in to the vineyard. And what do they do? They begin to nibble at the roots of the vine. 
and they can destroy a whole vineyard if they're not dealt with each at a time when they arise. Little foxes can destroy a vineyard. You know, the number one uh, listed reason for divorce, you guys know, differences. What's the word that, that we use? Irreconcilable differences, right? Now, if you were to challenge the couple, well, what are these irreconcilable differences? You know, they have a very hard time pointing to just like one. Why? Because it's not just one. Often when we list irreconcilable differences as the reason for the divorce or the disillusion of the marriage, it's a whole lot of little trivial things that each individually would have never justified a divorce, but they've added up over time. They've never been dealt with accordingly, and they've destroyed the vineyard before you knew it. You try to pinpoint one or two of them, it's hard. Little things that come and nibble at the vine. This is why the exhortation here for this particular couple is an, is an important one. The exhortation is, hey, guard the vineyard from the little foxes. What are little foxes? Little arguments that are never resolved. The Bible exhorts us not to go to sleep on our anger. There's an application of marriage that's very real. You're like, well, it's not that big of a deal. Well, it's probably not. You're right. Whatever that happened to be. He said something stupid. She reacted a different way. She bought something that put the bank account. Like, it's not a big deal. We argue about it, and then we're like, well, let's just forget it. It's easier to just move on. My husband came home with a, a pizza oven, and I just let it go. Hey, I can see you when you're whispering to one another. Little things. And in the moment, you're like, well, it's, it's you know, it, we'll just agree to disagree. And we'll move on. But do you? Do you actually really move on? And the truth is, is sometimes you don't. Sometimes you bury things, and you bury things, and you bury things. And all these little nibbles. One day, the spouse explodes. Or she walks in and says, I'm leaving you or I want a divorce, or I'm no, no longer in love with you. And you're like, well, I did not see that coming. You get hit in the nose. What happened? A lot, actually. But they were all little. It's easy to identify the big ones, but, but the, the exhortation here, whether it's her brothers or just collectively, they're exhorting each other. Hey, we got to deal with the little foxes. We got to prioritize dealing with those. Hey, if your marriage is, is struggling, if you're in a tough spot, you're, it, it, it wasn't one thing that got you into it, and it won't be one thing to get you out of it. That's just basic logic. So sometimes what you need to do is you need to find three little foxes and deal with that. You know what really ticks me off? You're the last one out of bed, and you don't make, you don't make it. I know it's not a big deal, but it ticks me off. I wake up with the kids. I don't, I've never heard this before. I'm just thinking it through. But, you know, I wake up to make, to make breakfast and pack the kids' lunches, and you slugger get out at the very last minute to take one of them to school. Again, just hypothetically. And it just ticks me off that, that you should make the bed. I have to make the coffee every morning. And that's not even biblical because there's a whole book called Hebrews. 
keeping you on your toes. Little foxes. Verse 16. My beloved is mine, and I am his. And he feeds his flock among the lilies. Beautiful, isn't it? Like what is being described here is kind of the symmetrical nature of the relationship. She's not just saying, my beloved is mine, and just leaving it there. But she's also affirming, and I am his. You're mine, and I'm yours. We should remind ourselves of that frequently. And then there's this, the, the, he feeds his flock among the lilies. Now, the lilies, if you go back to the second verse of the chapter, like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Remember, she says, I am a lily of the field. I'm just a common flower. And she's like, oh, he's like, oh, no, you're my lily, a lily among thorns. And so we have this language evoked again. He feeds his flock among the lilies. Basically, the affirmation here is that I am his, he is mine, I satisfy him, and he satisfies me. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains of Bathir. We have the same language here that we found in verse 8 and 9, which kind of gives us an indication of a a resolve to this particular song. So from verses 8 to 17, you can think of that as, as one song in and of itself, even though it fits within a, an odd chapter break. This conclusion, though, upon the mountains of, of Beor. So be like a gazelle, be like a stag, speaking of him upon the mountains. This word, Bethir, it's not an, a location. It's not an actual place. At least if it is, we have no other reference of it within Scripture. Uh, the word in Hebrew simply means division. You could read this as she's saying, you jump on it. Come on, baby. Upon the mountains and the division, be like a stag. Be like a wild gazelle. Again, the, the, the conclusion of sexual intimacy. Now we get to chapter 3, and we have a new sequence. By night, on my bed, I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. We find here, again, within the Shulamite, there being a sexual longing for her husband. She says, by night, literally speaking, it would be night by night. He's gone. We don't know why he's gone. Is he on a business trip? Is he at war? But she misses him. Night after night after night, she sought, she was seeking, she was longing for the one that she loved, the object of her affection, her husband. I sought him. I did not find him. She would wake up and search the house. Is he on the couch? Is he struggling with some acid reflux? Where is he? A late night glass of milk. She says, I, I will arise. I said, I'll go about the city. And the streets and in the squares, I will seek the one I love. You'll, you'll note within this song, the one I love is repeated at 
four different times. I sought him, but I did not find him. The watchmen who go about the city, they found me. Said, I said, have you seen the one that I love? Now, again, I don't, I don't see this as an actual story or, or this being some literal thing because a woman wouldn't be going searching around the city at night in her nighty looking for her husband. Again, this is, this is a song that's articulating a longing followed by a searching. Why? Because of a separation. So there's some beautiful language that's being employed here. Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one I love. And I held him, and I would not let him go until I had brought him to the house of my mother and into the chamber of her who conceived me. So she's longing. There's a separation between her and her beloved. She searches. She's not going to sit back. Uh, He'll come back sometime. No, she's active. She pursues. She runs after. She searches the whole city. She even asks the watchman, have you seen him? And then she turns and it's like he's there. And she grabs him. She embraces him. I held him and would not let him go. And then she brings him to her mother's chambers. She brings him to a place of safety, of security, but a place of intimacy. She's like, let's go to mom's house. Now, there's several different thoughts and theories about about this this whole concept. Um, You can go out and read all the wrong ones. I'll just give you the right one real quick. The idea here of of taking him back to moms is that what they're going to do, this sexual reunion, this lovemaking, this this reconnecting, is it's pure. It's not scandalous. It's not not anything that should warrant... um, an, an embarrassment of self or an insecurity. She's completely comfortable. She finds him. He's like, well, mom's house is closer than ours. Let's go to mom's because we need to embrace. Mom's got a bedroom. And again, there's no shame in what we're going to do. There's no reason uh, to hide it. We're, we'll go to mom's house. And that, at best understood that what's, what's happening here, yes, it's, it's erotic. But you need to to understand that it's very moral. There's nothing about this to be ashamed of. That there's something beautiful about it. We don't have to hide. I found you. You're back. Let's find the closest bed we can get. And it happens to be at mom's. There's a purity to this. And then we see, I charge you, the Shulamite speaking, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles, or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. We find here, again, a repeating of an earlier chorus, right? Or bridge, or however you want, you want to go about it. Verse 7 of, of chapter 2, I charge you by the daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles, or by the does of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. In, in its earlier context, we can understand the exhortation, again, of the Shulamite to the young virgins of Jerusalem, like, hey, this sexual passion thing is awesome. Don't stir it up at all. 
until it can please, until you can appropriate follow through. Hey, you've met your, the, the man of your dreams. Wait. No one stops at second base. Don't even go to first. Get out of the batter's box. Because once you start, I'm just telling you because I've, I've tasted it, you're not going to be able to stop. It's awesome. But it's reserved for something holy, holy and beautiful. In this application, and this, this kind of the second mention of it, we can kind of expand the idea just a little bit. The notion here of, of awakening something um, before it can reach its fruition, man, it really does have, and again, I don't want to just speak to uh, singles, but there's, there's, there's an idea that once you have sex, the relationship changes immediately to the point that all objectivity ends up being blinded. Like, for example, if you're dating a gal or you're dating a guy and in the process of dating, like there's some early red flags, some things about him. You're like, ah, I should watch out for that. I don't know if that's the, I don't know if he's the marrying type yet. I'm, still, I'm just not sure. And then you introduce sex, oneness. The problem is, you've heard of love blindness? Like, like I've, had, I've, had, I've had buddies who are dating a gal, and it's like, what are you doing? She is going to chew you up, spit you out, and ruin you. And he's like, and he doesn't see it at all. Like, how do you not see it? And he's just puppy dog eyes. Why? He's having sex. And because he's having sex, certain things have become one. Certain things that sex helps you overlook about your spouse. And let's be honest, that does happen, right? Shouldn't happen before marriage. This is why you should be careful. Let me give anybody that's single a, a good bit of advice. I've never met someone that married a person they didn't date. So what I mean is that you should have standards for the person that you date because they could be the person you marry. Never met somebody that married an individual they didn't date first. So you should be careful who you date because you might marry them. And if you have sex before marriage, your ability to effectively evaluate that person gets diminished and this is the exhortation of the Shunammite. Be careful. Let's see if we can finish the chapter. Who is this coming out of the wilderness? Like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchants' fragrant powders. Behold, so this is the answer to the initial question. Who is this? Behold, it is Solomon's couch with 60 valiant men around it of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man has a sword on his thigh because of the fear and the night. What we have here, again, probably transitioning to another song, part of the album, is kind of the arrival 
best understood of, of the wedding parties. So we're, we're at the precursors of a wedding. We'll get to chapter four and we'll see the consummation of that wedding. If you didn't think uh, we hadn't gotten to the real erotic parts yet, uh, buckle up, we'll get there. But in chapter three, we see the parties coming together. So who is this coming out of the wilderness? Behold, it is Solomon's couch. Now, who is riding on Solomon's couch? Think of it like a limo. Well, the who is, is actually in the feminine tense, so it can be best understood that the description of what we have here is the arrival of the Shulamite, which means that Solomon, or the beloved, has sent his limo to go get his wife, his bride, to go pick her up and to bring her to the ceremony. And there's a lot of regal and, and royalty and pomp and circumstance to it. It isn't that he, he's just sent a cab or an Uber. No, he sent, he sent his chariot, his couch. Imagine one of the, those, those ancient, like kind of Egyptian um, uh, regal traveling uh, beds where, you know, you've got the box and you've got the poles and you've got men carrying. This is, what, this is what's being described. And, and within it, like there is, there's fragrant powders and there's myrrh and frankincense. There's perfumes. He's dolled it up. He's got the chocolate and some champagne. There's some good tunes and he's got it protected. Now, th there's a passage, I believe in 1 Kings, where we're given a little glimpse into Solomon's own uh, private security detail, which was 30 valiant men. He is sending 60. He is ensuring that she is protected, that she is secure, that she feels special. Note, guys, that, that he, he does something smart here at the very beginning. He is making it clear to her that everything that he has is hers. It does, he sends his personal couch and his private detail. He is making sure she knows, hey, just like she said in the previous, my beloved is mine and I am his. He is reaffirming that by saying, all that I have is yours. All of my power, all of the security at my, my disposal, you're mine, I'm yours, and together we're one, and there's no divisions of it. Now, I don't want to get too specific into your own finances, but I will give a little warning that I think couples that divide the finances, and I've seen it work. Not, there's no passage in Scripture that says it's a bad thing to do or an immoral thing to do. I'm just saying that I have seen more often than not this create little foxes, where everything gets divided up, the bills get divided. We're married, we're one, but we have separate accounts, separate credit cards, separate debt, separate stuff, and we divide it all up. Well, you take care of the kids' dental work, but I take care of their eyeglasses. And it's like, well, wait a second. At that point, are you able to really say, I am yours and you are mine? You see, Solomon here is, or the beloved at least, is wanting to articulate to, to this woman, to, to the Shulamite, everything I got's yours, baby. There's no separation, there's no division. Verse 9, of the wood of Lebanon, Solomon the king made himself Palclean. He made it its pillars of silver, its support of gold, its seat of purple. I love this. Its interior paved with love. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding the day of the gladness of his heart. Now, we'll get, we'll get into a little bit more of this 
our next time together because this does segue into a marriage that then gets consummated. It, it really does flow into the next chapter. But I want to return just in closing to an earlier idea that needs to be uh, reinforced. The Shulamite senses that there is a separation, a division between her and her beloved. It's beautiful language. There's an actual physical separation. She goes and she searches for him. But, but the, it's more of a metaphor. She senses there's something wrong between her and her husband. She senses there's distance, there's separation, there's division. And what does she do? Does she sit back, complain to her mother, run her mouth to her friends, vent on Facebook or Instagram? No, she senses there's a problem. And what does she do? I got to close this gap immediately. There's an urgency, isn't there? She, she gets up in the middle of the night and goes to find him. Uh, the application can go either way in a relationship. Sometimes the man pursues, sometimes it's the woman pursuing. The point being, though, this resonates because we've all experienced it. It's not verbalized, but you just know we're not right. Something's in the way. There's a distance. And the wisdom of the Shulamite, the application for you and I, is don't sit back. As little foxes tend to ruin vineyards, little divisions can grow into bigger ones. Divisions can grow into separations and coldness. This is why when you sense it, you gotta go. You gotta search. You gotta connect. Hey, we gotta work this out. We gotta talk this through. We can't sit idly by. Again, relationships are hard. I'm glad that God has given us a book to help us navigate them. So Father, Lord, we thank you for that.